Today on the podcast, we're going to finish up with Julia Ross. We're going to talk about the key differences between animal and supposed vegetable proteins, as well as what the effect on the kidneys is, what to expect when you are suddenly increasing your caloric intake, and answers to questions from our audience on the Nutrition Heretic podcast coming up next. So I'm sure you've heard that as you age, it gets harder to lose weight. Well, that's total bull because my friends, Laura and Veronica Chow's, they can prove it. They're a mother-daughter duo, and they've lost 125 pounds between the two of them at ages 50 and 20. And they've kept it off for over two years without starvation, deprivation, or hunger. So now you can learn their system and a whole lot more with a free 10-day trial to their online membership. They'll give you the diet, the recipes, classes, and more. Sign up today at nutritionheretic.com forward slash utmost diet. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the Nutrition Heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. What are you looking at as far as the proportion of protein to fat to carb that is and 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 how do you justify that let's say Well well let's let's take the historical record again In the 60s when we had normal weight good health no diabetes um we were getting most of our calories from protein sources um and that was primarily um uh, animal protein including dairy uh, and nuts and seeds. So that was about 45% of the diet. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that was the primary source of our calories. And we were getting um, about 20% vegetables and fruits instead of 8%. And apparently most of it is uh, tomato paste <laughs> and, and fruit juice. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, so when we were getting, uh, you know, the balance was fat. And of course, a lot of the, the protein sources were fatty, nuts and seeds, meats, dairy products were all full fat um, at that time. So the historical record is very clear. We don't have to be afraid of protein. We don't have to be afraid of fat. And we don't have to be afraid of uh, unrefined carbohydrates. Um but we have to be afraid of our cravings for the drug foods. Right. Uh, and we have to be afraid of the, you know, the cult diet gurus who uh, are so persuasive mm-hmm. uh, in their modern inventions. You know, they're not based on the historical realities. They're not, they're mostly not based on real research either. 
Yes, uh, exactly. They, I think a lot of it is based on emotion, especially when you start getting into some of the, uh, you know, these ancillary diets, the, the, you know, macrobiotic and yada, yada, yada. And they have, uh, these, these very passionate videos of, you know, just animals being shredded for, <laughs> because they're expendable and, uh, you know, the, the filth in the dairy companies and, and things like that. Uh, they're not really showing you how disgusting the processing of a soy burger is. Well, they're not acknowledging the fact that because we have a conscience where, you know, living things are concerned, we have been improving things. There's tons of pasture-raised animal life on the planet now that never existed before. Um, I, I shouldn't say never. Uh, 70s it, it stopped you know the the uh, factory farming of animals started in the 70s too i'm telling you everything bad happened in the 70s <laughs> in terms of food the music was great but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, at, at any rate uh we're doing great things um what's the name of the uh autistic scientist who designed the uh the new uh beef slaughtering uh procedures oh i uh, i don't know Oh, I'll get you the information. I can't remember what her, her name is. There was a beautiful film done about her. Um, uh, she designed uh, a circular funnel that the cattle moved through and that do move through. I mean, this is a very successful enterprise, um, her invention. That's not that's not uh, Temple Brandon. Grandin. I think it is. Temple Grandin, yes. yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was okay. So, uh, so they don't suffer. They don't have any anticipation of what's happening at the end in the process of going through this this curving uh, maze that they go through. Uh, at any rate, you know, we're really working on that. It's not that anybody is saying, "Oh, let's torture animals." It's let's do it all. Let's save ourselves and keep the animals as comfortable as possible. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, would agree that that slaughtering animals is a wonderful practice. I wish I wish we didn't need animal protein as badly as we do. Well, I mean, and that's just a difference in, I, I, to some extent, with my parents come from Jamaica, which is, for all intents and purposes, a third world country. Uh, in, a, in the third world, that's kind of the least of most people's concerns, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and, and I think to some extent, and this, cause this may sound callous, it may sound ignorant, I, I don't really care. Uh, but uh, I think that what's happening now is that we're seeing people with a little too much time in their hands. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a testament to how far we have been able to come and how cushy our lives have become. And we've become very, very much uh, looking for causes to take up. Is, is the way I feel sometimes. Uh, I, I think that the, our passions are getting the best of us or, or the better of us. Um, so there, so you would say that with this, you know, the, the fear of kidney disease, let's say, by eating more protein, that that's something that we should not worry about. No, it's definitely something we should not worry about. And there's, and, and there's good research confirming that it's meat eating never was and still isn't a threat to the kidney. Right. Right. Yes. And exactly. But for some reason, those kidney studies or, or hearsay of kidney studies keep showing up in people's literature. And I, I, I blame something called PLR content. I don't know if you know what that is. No. OK, it's uh, it's private label rights content. And there are people who write 
these uh, very uh, general articles on different, it could be anything. It could be anything from, you know, marketing to tennis to what we should eat. And they write these to make it easier for bloggers to, I'm giving all, giving away all the trade secrets to, for, to make it easier for bloggers to create content, particularly the bloggers who are in it just for the money. So what they do is they sell this offer, you know, seven, 10 bucks a pop and everybody just publishes it. So when you go to the first page of Google on whatever your search term is, let's just say high protein diet. And suddenly there is all of this information saying almost verbatim, the same exact thing is wrong with a high protein diet. Uh-huh. And it's all this PLR content, you know, and you can, okay. you can always tell those websites cause they're not, they, they don't necessarily uh, say that they've researched anything. They have a ton of ads. It's all about the ads, you know, just to get the clicks and the, the ad revenue. Uh, and I think this is a huge problem in perpetuating these myths. I didn't realize that was another feature of the problem. But, oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's That's why my new book is going to be so heavily researched because I'm taking on so many different cult-like uh, convictions. Right. And I, you know, and I, I want them to know why. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, it's partly from my experience, which is more extensive than, you know, most other holistic health professionals can claim. And partly because of my age that I've lived through these changes and know uh, what diet can be and what health can be as a result of more traditional diets. Um but it's also because the, you know, science is desperate, you know, to find answers. And uh, there are people all around the world with real integrity doing their, doing their little jobs, you know, and focusing on some area to find the truth in it and um, clarify some of these opinions that we have. And uh, so I'm going to be, I'm happy to present what I feel is, substantive scientific support for these traditional common sense views that um, I think are our only hope. Right. Absolutely. I have to uh, back up. I want to talk to you more about your book and then I'm going to let you go. (laughs) But um, I want to find out because I think this is going to be the burning question for a lot of people. We're talking about going potentially back to 2100 calories a day, right? This is what women and men were eating uh, minimum at a time when obesity was low, when they were whistling, walking down the street. Of course, they weren't doing that where I grew up in the Bronx, but, you know, (laughs) we had our own version of that. Uh, And what is, and then we talked about the biggest loser. And I guess where I'm going with this is what is the expectation? We know that everybody's different, but people are always worried when they start, for example, eating high fat. Or something that makes more sense because they knew that they couldn't lose weight the other way. But they've been doing these starvation diets for so long. They're down to 1,200 calories, 700 calories. Now we're talking about going up to 2,100 calories. And now when they went from 7 to 1,200, they were already complaining that they're gaining weight. What's going to happen? What what would be a realistic expectation of someone even you know, balancing out the, the brain chemistry and still going to that uh, higher number of calories? Should they expect initially to gain some weight? Will they see a stall before anything starts to come off? What would be the, the reasonable expectation from anyone? Well, there isn't one expectation because different people 
respond metabolically differently and at different rates to, you know, the dietary trauma that we're undergoing. Um, and so, for example, we've had many people who have a long history of dieting, but they can still lose weight. Uh, and those people have no problem, you know, 2,100 calories, fine, that's a piece of cake, as they say. And <laughs> it took me a while, but yeah, I got that. <laughs> and, uh, and they do, uh, they do fine, you know, they lose weight. It's, it's not, uh, it's at a reasonable pace because frankly, we're terrified of, of fast weight loss, you know, inflicting more of this metabolic um, slowdown on people. Um, so we want to keep it as, as slow as possible and still uh, keep their, you know, their faith. Um, but there are other people who have, uh, I'm thinking of a woman who did a number of very low calorie diets. I'm talking the, the medically monitored 400 calorie a day, 500 calorie a day um, diets. And she got to the point uh, on her third or fourth of those where she was gaining weight on on 500 calories a day. Yeah, that's how slow her her metabolism had become. And with people like that, it could go either way. We don't know. You know, some of them, as soon as they get enough calories, you know, like a lot of people are trying to chronically maintain at like somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 calories. And if we can just get them to go up 300, 400 calories a day, just for a few days to see what happens. And typically they lose weight right away. Wow. But uh, there are other people whose, you know, calorie trauma, uh, calorie cutting trauma has, has really um, done something permanent to their thyroid function. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we get somebody like I'm thinking of a woman in her uh, late 50s, who uh, came to us, who was doing that somewhere between 1,200 and 1,700 calories uh, when she got to us. And uh, and she was under the illusion that she was eating too much because she had continued to gain weight. Exactly. And so I explained to her that, you know, in her case, uh, there was a family history of thyroid disorder um, and she had gained weight, you know, er early in life and had, you know, sort of desperately clung to these low calorie meals, mostly frozen meals to, you know, keep her plate limited. Uh, and uh, she knew because she tried it uh, that if she increased uh, the amount of food um, that she would gain weight, even though it was a moderate amount, just a few hundred calories. Right. So, but she had never done any sort of a food plan that, um, emphasized protein and saturated fat and de-emphasized even whole carbohydrates uh, as much as the, the diet that we were proposing to her. And she was frankly too, too scared to try it. So uh, where we started with her was getting a thyroid workup. And uh, the, uh, the Diet Cure book um, has two chapters on thyroid because we found this low-calorie diet creating thyroid dysfunction. Right. Um, so it explains what kind of testing you need to get and what the, um, the interpretation of, of the results should look like. Um, so that people know whether that is in fact an aspect, because every time we reduce calories to starvation levels, 
the thyroid will slow down. Yes. The question is, and that, and it varies so much between person to person, whether it will bounce back or not when, when calories increase. Um, and some people it does and some people it doesn't. So um, unfortunately, what we've learned is that the weight crisis, the weight gain crisis that we're suffering um, is extremely complex. There are profound genetic changes that occur during starvation, for one thing, hormonal changes. The article that, uh, that announced the uh, Biggest Loser study also talked about another study, a very low-calorie diet, 500-calorie medically monitored diet, and the testing before and after showing these radical changes in the hormone output um, that regulates weight gain. Right. That it was all reversed by the starvation. It wasn't just the thyroid. There were four, five, six different hormones all turning in this uh, terrible direction. So uh, what we need is to understand that it isn't our, it isn't self-discipline. It isn't willpower. It's really uh, biochemical. Thank um, you. Thank you it, for saying it, that. <laughs> Because I get so frustrated when I hear people just razz on, on, you know, people for being fat. It's all their fault. They have no willpower. And it's like, no, it's so far beyond that for so many people. Well, well I think a lot of it does come from the food industry because they, they're always saying, we don't make them choose this stuff. We, we just don't, don't give them another choice. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but they don't, they, you know, they don't acknowledge that the food is addictive. Um, after the diet cure came out, I got a call from General Mills. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, Representative General Mills um, acknowledging all the problems with their uh, cereals. And you know, I, after after he finished talking about the damaged fats and the damaged starches and the increasing amount of sugar and the fact that they marketed specifically to children, I said, you know, I yes, I agree, of course, uh, you know. Appreciate your acknowledging this, but what made you call me? Um, and uh, he said, well, in addition to everything I've just admitted, do you think that our food is also physically addicting? And of course, I said it was, and I had already published some of the proof of that in, in the diet cure at that time. And I told him I could get him more if he you know, really was interested. But uh, this was at a time where the tobacco industry had already lost the legal battles and, and, you know, was paying the insurance company for the tobacco industry, all the companies that insured them were paying huge, huge amounts. And the, and the attorneys who had won those tobacco cases were turning towards the food companies. And so they knew that they were going to be under attack. And uh, they were at that time desperate enough to call me. And they said something frightening when I said, why did you call me in the beginning of the conversation? He said, um, but we like to stay on the cutting edge. They they monitor what we're saying about them. They just don't listen. This is, you know, these, these foods are highly addictive. And to think that people could just walk away from, let's say they were lacing Twinkies with heroin. If we found that out, we would understand why people couldn't stop right. eating Twinkies. But uh, it's slow going to educate people about the actual hard drug nature of of modern 
uh, cuisine. Uh, <laughs> if we can call it that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but actually, what I'm curious about is when you talk about, we talk about the calorie restriction, does it matter if the person was doing, like, say, a paleo diet, you know, that's higher on the, the protein, possibly depending on who you're following the fat scale, because I'm getting a lot of people now who are presenting with, I went paleo and I gained 30 pounds. I, you know, did, but a lot of these paleo, um, high fat diets are still focusing on lowering those calories. Are they necessarily damaging their metabolism as much as someone who went the soybean route? Absolutely, because if we don't get enough protein and carbohydrate and fat and calories, we're going to burn the fat and the protein to substitute for the carbs we're not getting anymore. And so many paleo people are physically active. they desperately need some carbohydrates. Right. Uh, so that, you know, even though they're getting good quality food, it's getting transformed into the most basic cellular fuel because the, the body's just trying to survive, not get healthy. It can't get healthy. Right. And, you know, so many people who are doing paleo are also, you know, really into chocolate and really into caffeine. Isn't that so and, funny? <laughs> and really into wine uh, and alcohol. So, uh, you know, I think uh, that it all, so I'm I'm hoping since there are so many different kinds of paleo now uh, that people have more to choose from. And I think that they're, they're wise to be in that sort of area of, of uh, dietary confusion. Uh, You know, it's a little bit easier to find some rational uh, paleo people, but I don't think we can trust anybody with a new idea about food. The paleo diet is an invention. Yes. Of Lauren Cordain. And it's not based on what they actually ate. Uh, Nobody really knows. Um, And they were very different physiologically from we are. We don't have to go back to Paleolithic times to find healthy human beings. We have to go back to 1960, for heaven's sake. But by the way, my 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 uh, Danish friend Britt Malka, she's from she well, she's Danish. She's from Denmark, and she she was like, but I thought Paleo Man had ovens. They were baking bread, and so you know which paleo are we talking about? Because they they've got their like version of colonial Williamsburg in Denmark, and they've got ovens. You know, it's like it's for paleo the Paleolithic era, and they're showing them baking. Well, the baking did take place. Really, a long time ago, they're finding, you know, that they started to to uh, use grains uh, and they were healthy. Yes. You know, so uh, but they were processing. The grains were soaked. They right. were fermented. Right. Uh, it was it was uh, a different use of, of grain at any rate. Yeah, they weren't uh, eating Cinnabons. <laughs> Um, I do want to, I do want to ask one question for, uh, one of our, uh, listeners. Actually, sorry, I have two. I forgot I had two questions for you and we're going to have to wrap it up quickly. I'm so sorry to do this to you. Uh, Maria Gladstone wants to know, sometimes I crave stuff that I haven't had for years, like grape soda. The other week I was, uh, craving white jelly beans, specifically Brack's old fashioned flavor of vanilla. I seriously think that uh, it was a, a rainbow moonstone ring I was wearing. I guess it reminds me of them. Weird, but sometimes I read somewhere that magnesium contributes to cra- or deficiency. Sorry, cre- uh, contributes to cravings. Is this true? Uh, well, 
there's a myth uh, or that uh, magnesium deficiency draws us to chocolate specifically, which, which contains magnesium among many other things, both good and bad. Um, but uh, I frankly don't want to spend much time on somebody who only thinks about jelly beans occasionally. We have people who are eating nothing but jelly beans, you know, and those are the questions that I'm interested in. Right, right. Well, I, I, I've known uh, Maria actually for some time, and I know that she does have she's she she has had some some problems. She's come a long way. Let me put it that way. Uh, but it still for her seems to be a very conscious effort to stay away from those foods. Whereas oh, okay. some people, you, you see what I'm oh. saying? So she's not yeah. just someone who always eats great, but then has these little peccadillos. She's someone who just, she has to put all of her energy into it. And it, it oh. does feel more like the willpower for her. So she's more like the average American uh, suffering from a toxic diet uh, over, over a long period of time. And the, I would like to suggest to her that she get the diet cure, take the questionnaire, identify what part of her brain is setting off those cries for the foods that keep drawing her in and do an inexpensive challenge. Uh, just trial uh, the amino acid or amino acids that are identified um, and see it all quiet down. Right. Yeah. And she does have a, there is a family history of alcoholism. Uh, so the which, brain chemistry is set up right. uh, genetically, and then the, the, the American diet has eroded uh, things so that people who were genetically prone are much more so now. Yay! <laughs> Yay, American diet! <laughs> so I have uh, Christina Ordon uh, Ordones or Ordonez. I'm not even sure. I, I thought there was an Enye, uh, a tilde over the end, but uh, sorry, Christina. Uh, there's a popular gluten dairy free myth, mostly vegan diet that has a pretty big following in community. I used to be a fan before I came to my senses. One thing that always annoyed me is that they would post about eating a cheat meal of pizza or nachos, etc., and immediately felt an unhappy stomach. So they knew they weren't craving those foods anymore. Well, sorry, so they knew they weren't craving those foods anymore and that they didn't taste as good as they used to and that obviously their bodies didn't want it anymore. I call bullshit. And I eat primarily a real food diet, but nachos and pizza still taste just as bomb as they always did. <laughs> My question is, uh, sorry, I rambled, uh, is, is that mental? Is, do, do they just think these things don't taste as good as and uh, mentally because these physical ailments, or does your body actually reject the food if you go long enough without eating it? Can you stop craving something if you uh, go uh, long enough without eating it? So there's a couple of questions in there. So I guess she's saying, you know, if if someone, are these people just making it up? Are they, I'm thinking they damage their metabolism or they're just eating complete crap versions of nachos and pizza. Uh, but, uh, you know, is it, is it just that, uh, their body really does is rejecting it or is it their mental, let's say their ego that wants their body to be so intuitively, you know, it, it there is no way uh, to hypothetically answer this. You know, okay. If you have a real person sitting here, you can find out what kind of a vegan diet have they had, you know, if it was a big improvement over what they were eating before, then yeah, they may actually have, uh, reduced some of the toxicity and, and some of the cravings. Um, 
if they're really working at getting enough vegetable protein, um, if they're a vegetarian who eats a lot of dairy and digests and is one of those people who can digest dairy. You know, so there are a lot of possibilities, too many possibilities to conjecture about why those people feel such and such a way about food. I, my own experience is that the longer people have had a vegan diet, um, the more likely they are to start craving again. But uh, the, the real issue is Christina's own relationship with food and uh, that she's still drawn to uh, nachos and pizza. I don't know whether it's a, a problem for her, though, right. um, uh, since she primarily eats a real food diet. Um, and the whole point of nachos and pizza is that they create the sensation of pleasure in the brain. So if they didn't taste good, it, it would be a complete failure uh, by the food industry. Right. It, but it's not mental. You know, they're really drug substances and uh, they have pleasurable uh, effects on our brain. So we like them. Um, and the question is, can we have them every once in a while, the way Christina is trying to do? And, you know, get minimal damage uh, in terms of addictiveness or, or health or weight consequences. If so, fine. People don't have to be absolutely rigid unless their biochemistry is so delicate, you know, that they really don't have the latitude to have any toxicity. And I think people who are born, you know, and raised on this kind of American diet I think they've lost whatever, you know, kind of strength uh, they might have had for tolerating it. And uh, typically our clients just want to get away from it. And as soon as the cravings die, which is very short order, um, they're off in the other direction. They're trying to find foods. Uh, they're not trying to sneak the, the stuff back in. Right. Well, see, I, I, the way I look at it, whether it's any of these popular foods, tacos and pizza and hamburgers... There's, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with them. It's the fast food version that's wrong. So we, right. you know, in my home, we will make our pizza. My, my husband and I, we took a, a night off together and a friend came and stayed with the kids. I made pizza shells and put them in the fr freezer and my daughter made, so she took out some real mozzarella. She ground up some tomatoes and made sauce and, and they had pizza for dinner. You know, I don't mind that. Uh, we know that we don't do it every day, just as we don't eat a steak every day. Uh, but I don't, I'm not opposed to a well-made homemade nacho. And uh, to be honest, because we do those things ourselves, we're not satisfied with the restaurant version. <laughs> so it doesn't even come up most of the time when we go out on rare occasion, it will, but I'd be, you know, hard pressed to say that anybody would ever finish it because it's just, you know, at that point you're just eating just to eat, not because it tastes good. Uh-huh. Well, it's it's great. Uh, a lot of people have no idea what uh, home-cooked food is like anymore. And that's actually been a huge learning uh, point for especially my 13-year-old my is that she will have her friends over and they sit down. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's like a restaurant in here because you know, most of the time their moms are just telling them, go get some Hot Pockets and stick them in the microwave. And <laughs> you know, we're, we're sitting down to like a uh, a real pancake breakfast with bacon and eggs. And you know, <laughs> we don't, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not totally opposed to doing those things. So like we do it, 
once in a blue moon, you know, once a month or, or once every two months, whatever. Uh, yeah. you know, we have the, the pizza dinner or the hamburger dinner on a Friday night, you know, just kind of our, our end of week. Let's watch a movie and do something, but we do it ourselves. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's just really interesting to see kids who normally their parents complain that they won't eat anything. They come to our house and they're like, Oh, that's good. That, Oh, that was a salad. That was good for a salad. I could eat that, you know, like, oh, that's, you know, like. The, hey, they never had a salad with, without wishbone dressing. Oh, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, and and my 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 big thing right now is trying to source as much as possible locally. So when I make a salad, everything down to the, because we live in Hawaii, we have mac nut oil. I use mac nut oil instead of olive oil. I oh. use. Aren't you lucky? Exactly. I use limes from my my landlady's tree uh, or or my tree to, as my you know souring agent. I use local honey if I want to make it a little bit sweeter. You know the vegetables grow in my garden or or you know within a few miles of here. Uh, so it's um, you know it, it's it's doable. It's and it's not gross. You know <laughs> I hate to burst anybody's bubble who says that eating like that is just not tasty. Uh, because I've actually, my meals are pretty much all kid approved. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's some of the, the hardest stuff. And, and, oh, by the way, one of the things that you, your book woke me up to is that uh, the fatter the person, the pickier the person. Because we, we like to think of, uh, you know, popularly, uh, we are told that fat people, you know, people with weight issues, whatever, that they have no willpower, they can't control themselves, they eat everything in sight. And, you, you know, you see memes on it on Facebook, about it on Facebook all the time. But I would say that it's actually quite the opposite. I found that the the heavier the person, the more likely they are to have some strange food hangups. And, you know, to the point that they'll only eat those those craving foods that you're talking about. But then you put something else in front of them and it can still be pretty processed. You know, it's not even necessarily a matter of it being processed or not. And they just have these really weird flags that they throw up that say, I don't, I don't associate myself with that food. I don't eat that. Uh, so that's, that's another one of the myths that, that I'd like to bust through. And if you can at all address that, if you, I don't know if you feel the same way, but if you can at all address that in your, your upcoming book, I would love to read about it. Well, uh, great. I'm, you know, I'm doing everything I can to get it published as quickly as possible. So I'll let you know when it comes out. Do you and, have a uh, Do you have a title yet? I can't. Uh, can't divulge that. that. <laughs> there are people who can write a book in about two months. Yes. Um, and uh, so I've been uh, sworn to secrecy by my publisher. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay, well, please let us know when when that book comes out. And that's going to, can you uh, repeat for us what that's going to expose about our changing dietary world? Well, uh, what caused us to uh, change our minds about the way we ate, uh, had been eating for hundreds of thousands of years uh, in, in the 1970s, and what the repercussions have been, um, and how we can backtrack change our minds based on, on very good new research uh, about the value and safety of, for example, animal protein and saturated fat, um, and uh, find our traditional weights and, uh, you know, our traditional health again. Right, right. Well, it's, it's, uh, I, I commend you for the work that you're doing. It's so needed. 
uh, I think you are absolutely right. We're at a tipping point where we are starting to come to our senses little by little. Uh, as I always say, the pendulum must swing. So we were on one extreme. Now we've gone to the other extreme and slowly people are coming back to middle. And I've even seen this with my own Facebook group where people have left because they, you know, had some promise of something else, whether it was on the vegan side or the paleo side. And somehow they're coming back. They show up again because they're like, you're the only one who like doesn't totally say this is bad and that is bad because as you know, it's not always about good and bad. Sometimes it's just about a better choice. So, <laughs> right. It's a strange thing when people who are proponents of, of common sense uh, are called heretics, but uh, that's the way it's been for a while. So I hope you're right in that, uh, that people will uh, be able to recover from, from uh, what is potentially an irreversible um, health disaster. Right. And, and not only for us, but for, for generations to come. Uh, Julia, can you uh, remind us of your website and where people can find you? They can go to dietcure.com. And uh, one of the things they'll find there is that we have a virtual clinic for uh, food cravers um, to uh, help them with these amino acid therapy techniques that turn off the cravings. And then uh, if their issues are more along the lines of negative moods, they can go to moodcure.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for speaking with us. And definitely, oh, guys, th this, these books ha ha have uh, very much shaped the way that I think. So if you, if you like me, if you like anything that I've ever had to say on this podcast, you'll get the books, <laughs> yeah, or, you know, or, or at least the one that pertains to you, because they, they are truly uh, uh, just uh, fabulous tomes of information about where we were, and um, where we're going and how you can harness the power of proper amino acid input into your body to get the, uh, the output that you want. All right. All right. So much. Thanks so much. And you have a fantastic day. We're Me out. Too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.